Testament reading is from the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verses 6 to 14. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. The remembrance of the righteous is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. A wise heart accepts commands, but foolish lips will be destroyed. The one who lives with integrity lives securely, but whoever perverts his ways will be found out. A sly wink of the eye causes grief, and foolish lips will be destroyed. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. Wisdom is found on the lips of the discerning, but a rod is for the back of the one who lacks sense. The wise store up knowledge, but the mouth of the fool hastens destruction. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid, but the earth trembles, and the mountains hobble into the depths of the seas. Though its water roars and foams, and the mountains quake with its turmoil. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, a holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Nations rage, kingdoms topple, the earth melts to be lifted The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come to see the works of the Lord, who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. Stop fighting. armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and it shall be, world without end. Amen. New Testament reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that, although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. 
Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To Him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It says that the gospel lesson this morning is from Luke 21. That's partially right. I changed it. The gospel this morning is from Luke chapter 7. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. When John's messengers had gone... Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in soft clothes? Behold, there are those dressed in spent, splendid clothing and live in luxury in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and much more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will, prepare, who will prepare your way before me. And I tell you this, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet, the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is even greater than he. When all the people heard this, and all the tax collectors too, they declared that God was just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, having not been baptized for it. Jesus continued, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Because John the Baptist had come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say of him... That man has a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say of him, look, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet, wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the Gospel of the Lord. If you brought a Bible today and you'd like to follow along, we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're continuing our our walk through 1 Peter. If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd still like to follow along, there are blue Bibles on that uh, low wooden bench in the back. You're welcome to borrow one. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of those blue Bibles is yours to keep. It's our gift to you. So we're doing the first four, I'm sorry, the first 11 verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, but I'm, I'm really going to be focusing in on the last couple, verses Seven through 11. In every culture, in every society, in every group of people, there is kind of a, 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 some sort of shared idea about what happens at the end of the world. And the Bible actually addresses this too. And it's some of the best news in the Bible, 
and, and actually some of the most counterintuitive instructions. So I really want to focus on verses 7 through 11. Um, in verses 1 through 6, Peter is once again reminding the people that part of the Christian life, part of being citizens of this kingdom of God, being ambassadors for him, uh, that part of it means that we are going to suffer because Christ suffered. When we follow Jesus, we follow his path through the world. And part of that means that we are going to suffer on account of following him. And then he gets to chapter seven, he gets to verse 7. Now, so my question for you is, what would you do? Like, what, what would you actually do if you knew that the world was ending soon? If you knew that the world was ending soon, what would you do? How would that change your life? Lots of different people in, in lots of different societies will come up with their own ideas on this, and some of them can be pretty extreme. Uh, I remember in the, the mid-1990s, there was, a, there was a cult called Heaven's Gate, and they were convinced that the, there was a, a, a comet that was going to be passing nearby Earth called the Hale-Bopp Comet. And they were convinced that when that comet passed by Earth, it was going to destroy Earth, but that if they died at just the right moment, that their souls would be transmitted to that comet and it would shoot off to... And at that point, I stopped reading. So I'm not really sure what they believed, but that much I know. Comet's going to destroy the Earth. If they can die at the right moment, their souls will be transmitted to that comet. And so this Heaven's Gate cult that had been around since the mid-70s ended up being a suicide cult. And they found, I think, the, the 35 or so remaining members all killed themselves because they thought that the world was going to end. Other people will kind of devolve into this idea that, that we need to have armed revolution, that if the world is going to end, the only chance that we have is to fight back against the forces of evil. And still other, other cultures will, when they believe that the world is about to end, they will start indulging in, and this is a little bit what Peter is touching on, in the, in the previous verses. They will start indulging in these kind of orgies of, of self-indulgence and gluttony, gratifying every single impulse that they have because, you know, what the heck? The world's going to end anyway, so eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die. But the Bible, at the end of 1 Peter chapter 4, the Bible is pretty clear on how we should be preparing for the end of all things. And the great thing about it is that it is both very comforting and also incredibly ordinary. Because here's the thing. It is pretty clear from, from the writings of guys like the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul that they probably believed that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. There's good evidence for this. Now, does that mean that the Bible is wrong? Does that mean that the Bible is self-contradictory? No, it doesn't. These are, these are people who were writing these books, people who were writing these letters just like you and me. And Jesus had never said, I'm going to come back within a few years of ascending into heaven. But that was the belief of some people at that time. In fact, he said just the opposite. He said, no one knows when I'm going to come back. Even I don't know when I'm going to come back. Only the Father knows. Nobody knows the day or the time. And now some people will point to passages like in Mark 8 when Jesus said, this generation will not pass away before all of the things that I just said have come to pass. But that's often misinterpreted. He was talking either about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem 
which was happening about two years after this letter was written, or he was talking about his ascension into heaven. But for whatever reason, it seems pretty clear that Peter thinks Jesus is coming back, like, soon. So look with me at verse 7. The end of all things. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Another way to think of it is the end of all things is, is close. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-eyed and clear-headed for prayer. I think it's a very comforting message. Peter is saying the world is going to end. Now, whether, whether he thought that it was going to end in his lifetime or whether it's not going to end for 10,000 years after today, the world is going to end. The message that Peter is giving to these people is don't freak out about it. Don't freak out about it. In fact, make sure that you are staying clear-eyed and clear-minded so that you can pray more effectively. Prayer is how we talk to God. Prayer is how we listen for, for His voice. And so if we are in the middle of freaking out that the world is going to end and we're going off into some crazy different direction like suicide cult or armed revolution or self-gratification and gluttony, we're not going to be able to pray as effectively. We're not going to be able to hear from God. Be clear-eyed and clear-headed so that we know how to pray. That's his first instruction. So what else are we supposed to be doing? How else should we, we, we be living in light of the fact that the end of all things is very close at hand? Verse 8. And this is Peter actually quoting directly from Proverbs 10, which we just heard read. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another constantly. Maintain that love for one another constantly. And, and remember, love is not the same thing as nice feelings. Love is not the same thing as sweetness. It's not an emotional state. Love is actually an action verb. And love is a choice. Love is pouring out ourselves for one another in the same way that Jesus poured himself out for us. Love is self-giving and self-sacrificing. Love is visibly demonstrating how much we care about someone, how much we support them, how much we value them. And, and Peter's right, and Proverbs 10 is right. In those moments when we're with people that we love and we get angry, or those moments where we get selfish, it is our consistent posture toward one another in the fact that we are self-giving and self-sacrificing that helps to cover up those momentary instances of sinfulness. Those momentary instances of selfishness or anger can actually kind of fade into the background as we consider the sum total of our shared life together, if that shared life together is one of love. So Peter is saying, keep loving each other. Everything is coming to an end, and keep showing the love of Jesus to one another. And there's a part of me that when I read this that kind of thinks, like, isn't that just naive? Isn't, isn't it just naive to ignore all of the terrible things that are going on around us? So shouldn't we be doing more than that? Like, yes, okay, the everything is going to come crashing down, and what does Peter say? He says, be sober-minded and love one another. But shouldn't we be doing more than that? 
Well, I think some of that depends on what your view of the end of everything is when he's saying the end is near. Since the early 1800s in this country, one of the dominant narratives in the American church is this doom and gloom return of Christ where things are almost completely and unredeemably awful and the only saving grace is that Jesus is going to come back and remove all of his faithful followers. Remove them off of this earth and, and whisk them up to heaven. It is typically known as the rapture theory and it is not the most optimistic idea of what happens on this planet. But if you think that the earth is, is getting so wicked and evil that it's eventually going to consume itself and that our only hope is that Jesus comes back, grabs everybody, and shoots back up, then you're going to have a pretty dim view of the world. And so it's easy to think that as you read this of Peter saying something simple like, stay, stay in your rational mind, be sober-minded, be clear-eyed, and love one another. Like, if that's all that we're supposed to do because you have this view of the world that it's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, of course you think we should do more. Of course you do. So what else should we do? What should we do? What are we supposed to do? Give me something to do. There's so much, there's so much tension and anxiety in that view of Christ's return, in that view of his creation. There's a, to me anyway, there's a distinct lack of, like, safety and security. And to me, that doesn't sound very clear-eyed or clear-minded. But Peter gives such simple directions that when you stop and think about it, not only what he's saying, but the implications of why he's saying it, that it just, you can feel the comfort of God. The end of all things is near. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. The end of all things is near. The world is ending. Show hospitality to one another without complaining. Think about it this way, and this is a, a line by one of my favorite theologians, a guy named Mike Horton. He said, the world's about to end. Have your friends over for dinner. When we were going through Luke's gospel this spring, one of the things that we, we kept seeing is how much eating and drinking Jesus and his disciples do. Like, Jesus liked a party. So much so that in Luke 7, which I just read, Jesus said to the crowds who were following him, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you people are saying about him, that guy's a drunken and a, and a glutton. Uh, that guy's a drunkard and a glutton. But we see over and over that the shared Christian life is a life of shared hospitality. The shared Christian life is a life of table fellowship. It's opening up our hearts to one another, but it's also opening up our lives to one another and opening up our homes to one another, sacrificially and lovingly. There was a, uh, there was a really good series of science fiction comedy books in the 1980s called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I cannot, rem I cannot recommend them heartily enough. I have not read them in 30 years. I have no idea if they're good for Christians. But I cannot recommend them heartily enough. But anyway, the, the second book in that series is called The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. And it's about this restaurant which existed in this sort of static time bubble right on the edge of the entire universe coming to an end so they could kind of see it from where they were. And so it was kind of like dinner and a show because this restaurant existed constantly right before the universe ended so that its patrons, while they're eating their delicious meal, 
could actually watch the universe end. It's a little bit about what our shared hospitality, it's a little bit similar to what our shared life of hospitality is. It's a little bit like what Peter's saying. It's the dinner table at the end of the universe. The world is about to end. Have people over for dinner. The world is about to end. Show love to one another. That's literally what hospitality means, by the way. It's showing love to the other. Um, if you've ever heard the word xenophobia, which means being afraid of strangers or being afraid of someone who is other than you, the, the word that's used in the Bible is basically the opposite of that. So instead of xenophobia, it's xenophilia. It's showing love to others. And even more than that, it's showing love to someone who is other than you. It's showing love to strangers, opening ourselves up, serving one another. And then he continues this in verses 10 and 11 as he expands on what our shared life is. He says that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So whoever speaks as one who speaks or be like, basically whoever speaks, be like one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, be like one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is whatever gifts God has given to you, use them to serve the body. Use them to serve one another. Whoever speaks, let him speak as though he was speaking to God. Whoever serves, let him serve as a servant of God. And so what Peter is saying, what he's reminding us, is that our entire life is worship. Our entire life is a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise to God. So whatever God has given us, whether it's, whether it's talent or gifts or money or position or anything, whatever God has given us is to be given back to him self-sacrificingly for his glory and for the good of others. Peter is in effect saying, the world is ending, build one another up. And it's actually, it's one of these fortuitous moments that we're coming to this passage today. Because today after church, if you didn't know, uh, once a month we have a monthly church potluck and then a all-church meeting. And what we're going to be talking about at the meeting today is we are, um, for the first time since this church officially started in about June of 2020, we are starting small groups, which we are calling family groups. And this is, this is what our family groups are supposed to be. And so it's, it's really fortuitous that we're talking about this passage today. One of the main ways that we, that we be with each other, one of the main ways that we get to know one another better and love one another and serve one another is we show hospitality for one another. We open our homes. We share a meal together around a table. And in this way, in this way, we show others the kind of love that we have for one another, the kind of confidence that we have in the promises of God, that if the world is ending, we don't have to do anything, that if the world is ending, God is in control. We can show people the kind of confidence that we have in the promises of God and the kind of hope that we have for how all of this ends. And so we don't just, we don't just show hospitality to other Christians. Although the Bible is very clear that we need to be especially showing hospitality to other Christians. 
But then, but then, we invite others into that table fellowship. We invite others to see the hope that we have, the love that we have for one another. And so the, the, the theory is, and it, and it can work, the theory is that then kind of these table fellowship groups and small groups actually become kind of a side door into the church. Because not only can you be, can you be praying and, and feasting with your friends in your church family, but you can also invite your neighbors and your coworkers to come see. When the early church was forming, one of the ways that the church spread, one of the main ways that new people were brought into faith is by Christians inviting non-Christians into their homes and allowing them to witness this kind of fellowship. And hospitality is not just unique to the New Testament. You can see it all through Scripture. For, for most of the history of Israel, they were, at best, a semi-nomadic people. And so they put a high value on hospitality. If you are, let me give you an example. Um, if you are a group of wandering exiles, if you are a group of strangers and aliens, you cling to one another for support. You help one another out. You hang together as you're moving through this foreign land. And you feast together, each one bringing something that they made so that they can share it with the whole group. And so there's a reason why Peter is reaching way back into the story of early Israel when he's addressing these Christians living in a secular world because it's the same as us. We are the same kind of strangers and aliens as Christ followers. We cling together for support as we move through this foreign land that God has put us in. And we each bring a little something that God has given us to share with the group, whether that's food or whether that's a prophecy, as he's talking about here, whether that's a spiritual gift of being able to, to teach or being a prayer warrior or being able to help. We share our gifts with the group so we continue this feast that Christ has given us. It is unbelievably simple and ordinary. So the end is near, Peter tells us. The end is near. We don't have to worry. The end is near. We don't have to take up arms. We don't have to hole up in a bunker. We don't have to be afraid. Because this nomadic life of ours, as, as elect exiles, is lived in a, in a strange time. And I don't just mean today. The time between Christ's resurrection and ascension and Christ's return. Now that strange time has been going on for about 2,000 years. But it's what theologians refer to as the already and the not yet. And that's the time that we live in. When some of the promises of, of God have already been completely fulfilled. But some of the promises of God are awaiting their final fulfillment. Like, the Messiah came to earth. The Messiah was born, just like God said he would be. The Messiah died, which was nuts. How, how can you kill an everlasting king. That doesn't make any sense. But he did, just like God said he would be. The Messiah rose again. People don't come back from the dead. We know that today. They knew that then, too. But the resurrection of the Messiah was hinted at across the entire Old Testament, and then it happened just like God said it would. Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. 
All of these things happened. So that's the already. The promises of God have been fulfilled in those already promises. But not all of the promises of God have been fulfilled. Christ has not yet come back to make all things new. The kingdom of God has been established on earth, and it is breaking through into the kingdom of this world, but it has not been fully consummated so that it covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. So we are participants in that that in-between time. And we're participants in that moment where the kingdom of heaven is meeting the kingdom of earth. That's what the church is when we gather. In a small and an incomplete way, it's the meeting of heaven and earth. And when we feast together, we get to share in that tiny little foretaste of what our life is going to be. When we gather around this table every week, we get to share a tiny little foretaste of what our life is going to be. And so as Peter, as Peter commands us to do, when we open our homes to one another, when we open our lives to one another, we are getting a tiny little foretaste of what our life will be when all of those promises that are not yet, when all of them move to already, after Christ comes back. And we actually, we actually sang about this in our very first song today. The song is called Arise, Shine, for Your Light Has Come. It's based on the passage uh, Isaiah 60. And Isaiah 60 is a perfect picture of what life in this fully realized new creation is going to look like. It's, it's basically the anti-rapture. It's, there's no sin, there's no death, and there's no more evil at all. The only thing left on the earth is God and his covenant family, Christ and his people. And so all the gifts that God has given us, if you read through Isaiah 60, you will see all the gifts that God has given to the world, not just to his followers, but to everybody. All of these gifts are being brought into God's presence. There's art. There's, there's manufacturing. There's technology. It's everything. Everything that humans have created, whether it was created for good or whether it was created for evil, once Christ comes back, all of that is redeemed and it's brought into the city of God for God's glory and for our use. And that's where all of this is heading and that's why we can have this simple, quiet confidence. The end, is, the end of all things is near. Show love for one another. The end of all things is near. Be calm, sober-minded, and clear-eyed. And, and that end of things might happen by the end of today, or it might happen 10,000 years from now. When Peter is saying the end of all things is near, he doesn't necessarily mean time-wise. What it really means is the end of all things is, is close. The end of all things is close. The, the veil between this world and the next is getting thinner. The veil between heaven and earth is getting thinner. The kingdom of God is breaking more fully into the kingdom of this world every single day. So in either case, whether it happens at the end of today or whether it happens in 10,000 years, we know what we're supposed to do. Show hospitality to one another. Love one another. Be calm. Be relaxed. Be clear-eyed and sober-minded. The end is at hand. Give freely of what God has given you. The end of all things is very close to us, and so you have nothing, nothing to fear. 
no matter what happens, no matter the, the suffering that any of us will go through, which Peter spends about two-thirds of this book talking about, he's very clear that the Christian life is one of suffering. We have nothing to fear because we know how all this ends. The end of all things getting closer is actually, for the Christian, really good news. And so we are to stick together in this mobile kingdom of, of priests. We're sti to stick together in this, this tabernacle that's moving its way through the world. And as he concludes in, in verse 11, I'll conclude here, we do this in order that everything, that in, we do this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.